Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to our panel, Beyond the Left Wing of the Possible, DSA and the Road to Socialism. My name is Jacob Alexander. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm a member and a former president of the YDSA chapter at Florida International University. Uh, I'm also a member of Reform Revolution Caucus, and I'll be hosting today's discussion. Uh, as the DSA National Convention approaches and members from across the organization prepare for significant debates about the future of our socialist movement, the necessity of open discussion regarding principles and strategy cannot be overstated. From electoralism to mass movements, democracy to labor and political independence to revolution, we face a series of interconnected questions about the where and when of DSA. As such, Marxist Unity Group and Reform Revolution have organized this panel between some of DSA's major caucuses as a way to map out the diverging roads to socialism. This discussion will also be recorded and published online on Reform Revolution's YouTube channel. So before we get started, I'd like to briefly introduce each of our panelists. Uh, first, we have Renee, uh, who joined DSA in early 2017 as a member of NYC DSA, where she helped to build the chapter's electoral program. She moved back to her native California in late 2019 and joined East Bay DSA. Uh, she is finishing up terms uh, on EB DSA's uh, steering committee and as co-chair of CA DSA, uh, where, which she helped to build as a key member of the CA, CA DSA exploratory committee. In her day job, she's a civil rights lawyer and a proud union member and has offered legal assistance in her time in DSA to chapters across the country navigating campaign finance laws and other legal issues. Uh, next, we have Kristen, uh, who's an early childhood educator and mother who has been on the socialist left for the last 20 years. She joined DSA in 2016 and is a member of NYC DSA as well. Uh, she's currently serving as the co-chair of Bread and Roses. Uh, next, we have Sam, uh, who is a former co-chair of DSA San Francisco and is the outgoing secretary of California DSA. Uh, he was a staff organizer for DSA SF's uh, People First San Francisco ballot measure campaign that won a vacancy tax and moved city elections to uh, even years uh, to double turnout. Uh, he writes on international solidarity, leadership for DSA organizers, and socialist electoral work. Uh, we have uh, Rashad X, uh, who is on a mission to make it normal for DSA to be more anti-imperialist, anti uh, more anti-constitutional, and more independent. He works on this mission as co-chair of Lakefront DSA, a steering member uh, of the Growth and Development Committee, and a new EC, uh, new EC member of the Afro-Socialist and Socialists of Color Caucus. Uh, and on a personal note, he's driven by the pressure to create a better world uh, for his three beautiful Black nephews. And last but not least, we have Jesse Dreyer, uh, who is a member of the Reform Revolution Caucus, the co-chair of Portland DSA, and a rank-and-file member of Teamsters Local 162. He's been actively organizing in the socialist and labor movements for a decade, he is a fan of the Portland Trailblazers and wishes to use this platform to demand the front office trade the third pick in order to build around Damian Lillard and win now. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, awesome. Now that we've all been introduced, we're going straight into opening statements about the prospects of for a socialist movement today. We're gonna begin with Rashad, uh, if you're able to uh, come in. The prospects for a socialist movement today or the chances of one existing today are guaranteed. Because if there wasn't one, I wouldn't have survived the stress of the last few years. I wouldn't have the hope to overcome my fears and I wouldn't know what to do about my tears. The stress I mentioned comes from, comes from surviving the pressure to provide despite making below a living wage. Surviving the pressure to provide given my migrant partner's job status 
and surviving the pressure to provide for incarcerated family members. The hope to overcome fears of capitalist forces being too strong comes from experiencing the socialist movement's growth after a membership drive locally. Experiencing the socialist movement's national capabilities with the GDC and the Green New Deal Commission and experiencing the socialist movement's colorful resiliency through Afrosoc. Ultimately, when that stress and those fears turn into late night tears, the socialist movement abroad tells me sniffle them up and study their valuable lessons. Take the socialist movement and the plurinational state of Bolivia, for example. When I stress about the continued presence of racist police and vigilantes here, I find calmness in Bolivia, showing us the importance of not just labor power, but socialist labor power because they use theirs to shut down the economy, not just for better wages, but to win the battle to reinstitute socialist democracy. Or when I fear that electoralism may inherently breed socialist imperialist electeds, I find hope in Bolivia, showing that political independence is the only way to hear our electeds dangerous case of social imperialism. They achieve political independence through MAS, a political instrument for the sovereignty of the people, empowering them to be a leading electoral party advancing decolonial processes in its borders and advancing decolonial processes through Palestinian solidarity. I know I'm not alone, not only in already being a part of an existing socialist movement, but also I'm not alone in the socialist movement being a tool to address economic stress. I'm not alone in fearing capitalist forces co-option of our movement, and I'm not alone in being inspired by the socialist movement's progress abroad. I'll yield the rest of my time. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Rashad. Uh, next, we're going to be going to Kristen. Thanks. Um, so the short answer for me to this question is it depends. Uh, we can recognize that the resurgence of the left over the last several years has opened doors to possibilities that couldn't have been imagined for decades before. But we also have to be cognizant of the fact that the socialist movement in the U.S. today is still in its infancy. And how we move forward from this kind of nascent, scrappy movement towards a much more mature, more serious one is the major challenge that we face in this moment. Um, so when thinking about how to move forward, I think it's incredibly vital that we expand our timeframes when we think about our questions. It's felt like everything has moved really quickly since uh, Bernie Sanders announced his uh, candidacy for presidents in 2016. Um, but now that we're at the end of the, the Bernie movement and we're entering this post-pandemic world where we kind of hoped that things would be radically changed and have found that they're not really, um, it's time to move a little bit more slowly without the central uniting goal of a presidential election. Um, so now we, we have to move a little bit more slowly, a little bit more intentionally, and think more deeply about what we're doing as a movement. And there's a lot to be hopeful about in this moment. Um, we have found ourselves with a little bit of power in the state, but we struggle to figure out what that mean, what it means to be a socialist in elected office today. Um, in the labor movement, the fruits of decades of human, union reformers, many of them socialists, are now coming to bear. Um, but this creates a new set of challenges for how do we navigate this new landscape where union reformers are leading these unions, creating new questions for us. 
Um, internally, DSA, we're in a bit of an, an identity crisis, and we have to work to figure out what it actually means to be a mass multi-tendency democratic socialist organization in actuality and not just in name. Um, we shouldn't see the slowed growth necessarily as a negative yet, but we should see it as an opportunity for, for being able to spend more time intentionally creating our organization. All of these new questions are really good problems to have and ones that socialists have not faced for decades and how we answer them will inform our prospects going forward. Finding the answers can open doors that can lead to a socialist future um, and the new world that we want to create flows directly from how we engage in, with each other and our prospects hinge on getting that right. Uh, thanks a ton, Kristen. Uh, next, we're going to be uh, moving over to Sam. Hi, everybody. So excited to be here uh, to speak with all of you. Um, I would categorize our current moment as the socialist movement, which we must remember uh, is DSA is a major part of, but does not entirely include, uh, is, is not composed only of DSA, is facing a recession in the generalized surge of American political activity that carried the socialist movement forward starting in 2016. This is in history a common phenomenon with you know rehearsal and activity of, of revolutionary work uh, going on throughout these processes, but it's nevertheless a scary moment for those activated into socialism via DSA in recent years. This is coming alongside a surge in the labor movement with increased unionization and strike activity, which can seem contradictory, but we must remember that the merger of socialism and the labor movement is an active process for us to be developing. The political energy of the Trump years has receded with the fulfillment of the Biden administration's promise to dull the tenor of politics for the country. These conditions aren't in our control, but this is an opportunity to strategically assess what allowed for DSA's explosive growth and what can be done to formalize and systematize it for future upsurges. Moments like fights against police terror in 2020 or the political response to the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision were not revolutionary in the sense of we could have just won the game by playing differently, but we must acknowledge that revolutionary consciousness requires seeing every moment as an opportunity to accelerate the real movement against the state of things. We should analyze the positive work that our organization and its chapters did, for example, in coordinating protest activity in 2020, fighting for abortion access across the country, including at the ballot box and in the streets last year, while acknowledging where the organization's interventions uh, failed to fully take advantage of the situation. As we take this moment to reassess our political direction, we need to keep the torch alive with well-developed political campaigns, uh, but also to a certain extent need to acknowledge that shifts in the broader political condition we face are not within our control. Uh, with this, I want to quote a Red Star comrade, Matt M. This is not necessarily a death spiral, more likely a tidal recession. We are seeing the reversal of the great influx of the Trump years, and even the effort needed to keep the organization running feels Herculean against the draw. Yet as the tide recedes, we can take stock of our ecosystem from a new perspective. We can see the contours of the seabed and understand more concretely the terrain we have been organizing on. And we will find tidal pools that remain, teeming with life that is struggling to adapt lest it perish. The task for Red Star, and I would argue for DSA, is to resist the urge to consolidate within a tough shell, take comfort in our principles and wait for the next tide, and instead use our methods to try and adapt to the pressures which face us, learning to breathe the air and walk on the land as we continue to follow our pole star. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you, Sam. Uh, next up, we've got Jesse. 
Comrades, DSA represents a promising movement for socialist change in the United States with the potential to fulfill its transformative promise. It is not the sole encouraging sign as we witness mass protest movements, increasing radicalism among the youth, and most notably, a resurgence in labor organizing. These developments indicate a revival of class consciousness and socialists have a crucial role to play in this process. However, it is essential to acknowledge that DSA has faced a crisis over the past two years. Without a significant course correction, starting from this convention, there is a genuine risk that this crisis may worsen. Top executive staff and the majority of our leadership strategy of liquidating ourselves into broader movements rather than committing to party building has contributed to declining membership and decreased activity in chapters since Biden assumed office. Additionally, concerning incidents have occurred within DSA's Congress congressional delegation. Three out of four DSA Congress members voted to ban a railroad strike without an adequate response from our own leadership. Moreover, when DSA Congress member Bowman voted in favor of providing US military aid to Israel, the majority of the NPC chose to suppress our BDS National Working Group for speaking out publicly instead of effectively challenging Bowman. These incidents exemplify a broader trend where DSA members in Congress have become less representative of DSA and increasingly integrated into the Democratic Party. And in this way, we must find ourselves with DSA adrift, that significant course correction, hopefully as Sam's tide comes in, can push our boat out to sea even further. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Uh, and concluding opening remarks uh, will be Renee. Uh, saving the best for last. Um, I think the prospects for socialism in the United States are, are good. Um, I think they're better than they've been in a long time. Support for socialism among millennials and Zoomers is at or above support for capitalism, we have elected socialists at nearly all levels of government all over the US. The labor movement, while still a shadow of its former self, is engaging in exciting new organizing with an uptick in strikes and overall militancy and the revival of stagnant unions through rank and file reform movements. In the wake of the 2008 depression, Americans have a rising awareness of economic inequality and the role of the ruling class in maintaining it. Social movements like Occupy, Black Lives Matter, and the climate movement have activated thousands more into left-wing political engagement. And finally, to say itself, oh, sorry, um, for the first time since the McCarthy era, there's a large, vibrant socialist organization that can actually intervene meaningfully in political struggles, whether that be in the electoral arena, in the labor movement, or in the streets. I belatedly realized in drafting the previous sentence that I hadn't mentioned the two Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns. It's incredibly important in understanding why I, we find ourselves in this large socialist organization to recognize the effect those campaigns had on turning people into socialists and turning socialists into organizers. I'm old enough that I actually went to a Ralph Nader campaign appearance back in 1999. I don't think his message that there is absolutely no difference between George Bush and Al Gore resonates much after the war on terror and the invasion of Iraq. Bernie's insight that you could get more people involved with a left-wing explicitly socialist campaign inside the Democratic Party, where you don't risk playing spoiler, is a key part of his campaign's successes and our own incredible growth. All that said, we of course face immense difficulties in building socialist power in the United States. Some of those are related to how hard organizing is. I occasionally joke that DSA is the worst place to politically organize, except for every other organization I've ever been involved with. Organizing in DSA is hard in part because this is a democratically run organization and life in the United States doesn't prepare most of us to be actual democratic subjects. DSA also suffers from a lack of funding, 
which in turn means we lack the staffing necessary or the ability to pay leadership necessary to create the structures that would support a stronger organization. Our task as leaders is to build DSA and through DSA to build power for socialism. The prospects for socialism in the United States are better than they've been since the beginning of the Cold War. That's a bit like William Buckley's joke about Michael Harrington that being called America's foremost socialist is like being the tallest building in Topeka, Kansas. We have a long way to go and a lot of work to do to get there, but this is a fertile moment for the socialist movement. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks, Renee. Uh, thank you, everyone, for starting us off on a very strong and productive foot. Uh, next, we're going to be moving on to uh, one-minute responses uh, for the panelists to speak about where they agree and disagree with each other. Uh, and uh, we're going to start off with Sam. Great. Um, so one minute is pretty quick. I'll just uh, run through some things that were coming up as I was listening to presentations. I think um, from Rashad, I think really picking up the call to be learning from socialist organizations across the country and the socialist movement outside of the United States is incredibly vital. I think it's given me a lot of hope and I agree with that. Um, I think I agree with uh, Kristen's point that we need to be struggling to figure out what it means to be socialists within the United States uh, state apparatus. I think that's a really difficult question that we haven't fully internalized what that means. Um, I agree with Jesse's point around disillusionment with uh, our members of Congress and the work of uh, staff within DSA, but I've also seen a worrying lack of active coordination of this point from the National Political Committee itself. Um, and though I think there are opportunities for us to have higher expectations, I think it starts with leadership really sitting down and, and being more active in their work um, and not letting stuff like the Socialists in Office Committee slip. Um, and finally, within regards to internal to the Democratic Party being an opportunity for organizing, I think we need better clarification of what it actually means to be within the Democratic Party. Contesting on the ballot line is different than operating within the party apparatus itself or uh, holding political work within the Democratic Party's uh, stated positions. And I think we need better clarity with the Democratic Party and the structure that it is. And I'm already over time, so I'll cede. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Uh, next, we're going to be going back to Renee. Sorry, I thought we were going to follow the same order. So I'm a little uh, uh, unprepared off the jump. I, get, I mean, I think it's quite obvious from our opening statements that I'm going to be the panelist that most people disagree with, and, and I, in turn, have all of you to disagree with. So um, the one thing I would pick up on is the idea that we're adrift. Um, it's certainly true that COVID and the demobilization that come that came through Trump not being in office has, has decreased our activity, and, and there are places that we're receding, but we're still incredibly large. We still do incredibly good work, and I think that what we should be thinking about is what, what some folks have identified is what how do we take this moment to build structures that are going to um, uh, get us to the next place we need to be. Um, the other thing that I would uh, just say is to pick up on Kristen's point and, and Sam's point a little bit about timing. Um, you know, I don't think we necessarily have a huge amount of time to figure out what we want to do because we face in climate change and the rising Christian nationalist right really direct threats to the working class that aren't going to wait for us to build as slowly as we might want to. And I think my strategic orientation comes because I see those as incredibly urgent podcast, excuse me, incredibly urgent, I've read the word podcast immediately said it, incredibly urgent problems that aren't going to wait for us that if we're not in that fight, the working class isn't going to want to join us because they're going to be so important. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Renee. Uh, and yeah, uh, speaker order will be different for each of our sections. So uh, uh, stay on your toes. Um, Jesse, you're next. Oof, I, I should have been taking more notes rather than a uh, uh, problematizing. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I 
I do agree with the, the kind of perspective that Sam has said that like, you know, uh, we are in a recession in DSA. You know, we have seen a, you know, quarter after quarter of decreased growth, uh, you know, a reduction in size, et cetera. I, I also, I disagree with that perspective that like COVID was like something that actually like limited us. I think we saw our biggest growth during the first part of COVID when there were no vaccines, all lockdowns. We had the DSA 100K campaign. It really started this kind of like decrease at the start of 2021 when the Democrats came back into power in the federal government and the kind of like interactions that DSA has had, you know, in that sphere since. Um, <clears throat> uh, I have 15 seconds left. So I also want to agree with Kristen uh, on her statement about like, you know, this interesting crisis that will, that the problem that we'll face with uh, reformists taking, uh, uh, reform leaders and unions taking power and the kind of problems that that will pose for us, particularly as it relates to the upcoming UPS campaign. But we'll hopefully we'll talk about that later at that time. Check Thank you, Jesse. Uh, next, we have Rashad. The top three things I want to highlight are number one, Renee, I don't think it's all going to be disagreement. I really agree with the critical optimism that I hear from you and the unapologetic optimism, which is a mindset that I would encourage more of us to have. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. And going off of that critical optimism, I also heard that from Jesse, and I think he hit the nail on the head when it comes to really two of the things we got to be most critical of is too much of our leadership having that liquidationist orientation, uh, as well as the con congressional electives that we had falling short of following socialist principles and following our DSA platform. And last but not least, I really agree with Kristen in the sense that a lot of the problems that we have that are completely in our control and they will require intentionality and working with each other with care and respect to move forward. Cool, thank you Rashad. And lastly, we have uh, Kristen for this section. Uh, thanks. Um, yeah, so I think that there's a lot, actually a lot of agreement and overlap among all of us. I think I really agree with um, Rashad pointing to learning from other uh, socialist organizations and movements around the world. Um, I also think that I, I agree with Renee's point about urgency, but also think that acting er, acting in response to urgency can lead us to try to take shortcuts to lead us try to tie to um, find ways around the like long, careful building that we need to do. And I just, I only have 20 cents. So I just would um, urge that we think deeply about moving forward in really intentional ways and not constantly following that feeling of urgency. All right, thank you everyone uh, for the responses. Uh, okay. Uh, we have two big questions for the panelists before uh, we move into open discussion with the audience. Uh, you all will have uh, three minutes for each one. Uh, first, what is the path to socialism for us in the United States? Jesse, you can start us off. Uh, well, first of all, socialism is international or, or nothing. There will not be socialism in the United States without a fundamental change internationally. And there will be no change internationally without ending capitalism, imperialism, militarism in the belly of the beast that is the United States. My vision of socialism includes winning Medicare for all, free education and childcare, climate justice, guaranteed jobs with living wages, social housing, ending racism, misogyny, heterosexism, but it doesn't stop there. To achieve socialism, we need to break with the capitalist system itself, a break with the underlying social system of capitalism. 
This means replacing public ownership of the means of production with the democratic socialist ownership, the domination of the private market with democratic planning, overcoming the limitations of competing nation states with a new international socialist order and abolishing racism, sexism, and all forms of oppression with a democratic, egalitarian, and solidaristic society. And obviously, how do we get there? We need to be building a large social base. You know, I, I liked what uh, Neil Meyer recently posted on Twitter as a poll, like what is one of the underlying issues that DSA has? And one of the, you know, answers to that question was, is it too narrow a social base? And I think that we do have too narrow a social base. We need to expand our social base by creating an organization that people want to come into. And I think that in a lot of ways, DSA, primarily because of elements of our, our political policy uh, that is external to us, specifically in our electeds in Congress, some of the cultural <laughs> elements that exist within DSA, particularly uh, what I would describe as an uh, uncomradely and unwelcoming kind of like uh, interactive behavior, which is why I appreciate calls like this, where we can, you know, strive to create a more democratic discussive element with, within our organization. But it's going to take that time as well as embedding ourselves inside the industrial working class and the broader working class, whether that be in the service sector, professionalized sectors, etc. So I'm going to yield the rest of my time to allow a further discussion, hopefully a longer open discussion. Thank you. All right, thank you, Jesse. Um, as much as I like seeing uh, kind of everyone capture the moment, I do want to give you all a fighting chance. So I'm going to go through the speaker list uh, uh, so y'all know uh, where you're coming up. So first uh, or next, we're going to have Rashad and then Kristen and then Sam and then Renee. Uh, so Rashad, you can go ahead. Our path to socialism needs to be one in which we take anti-imperialist action consistently and unapologetically. Because if we don't, we are losing the opportunity to play our unique role in helping the global socialist movement advance to higher phases. We are also taking huge growth and development risk from continuing to stunt our membership growth by alienating potential members, by alienating potential members like those from organizations boycotting us to failing to retain valuable longtime and newly joined active members. Both of these growth risks are also development risk too because falling dues prevent stable financial forecasting and stunted growth prevents increasing our budget to pay for things like full-time political leadership. If we choose the anti-imperialist path consistently and unapologetically, rather than the shameful and historically failed path of social imperialism, then it will also require us to win the battle for democracy so that we have the necessary worker power, the power to take our struggle to new heights through democratic labor unions and tenant unions, free from bureaucratic and NGO corruption. Additionally, winning the battle for a democratic republic versus just defending limited democratic aspects of our political system. These will allow us to take the political power needed to abolish the global imperialist police force, defend against capitalist imperialist interests post-seizing power, and establish a democratic social republic here on Turtle Island. Lastly, both mass anti-imperialist action and winning the battle for democracy will require us to take the path we committed ourselves to in 2021, the path of transforming DSA into an independent mass socialist party, a revolutionary mass party where there's information transparency for political leaders and rank and file members. There's mass member participation and convention decided priorities, and there's a clear elevation of our convention decided platform. If we take the path of building this type of party, then we can create the unity that will help us win the battle for democracy, thus giving working people in the United States the political power to merge with the global socialist movements, ultimately 
helping our movement reach new heights that we've never seen before. Thank you, Rashad. Uh, Kristen, you're up next. Um, so the path to socialism in the United States um, is going to depend heavily on the socialists' move, movement's ability to first shift the protagonist in the story away from DSA or activists or even socialists and onto the working class itself. No number of socialists is going to replace the organized working class as the mover of change in society. The, as people begin to struggle against bosses, landlords, hoarders of wealth, that's the only way forward. And that being said, but that being said, socialists have key roles to play in making that happen. Firstly, it's going to require a massive resurgence in the labor movement. What we've seen happening in T with um, the victories of TDU and UAWD, that's the be just the beginning of what happens when socialists are able to focus and work for a really long time. However, we need many, many more union reform efforts like that, and we need socialists entering the labor movement as rank-and-file union workers at a scale that we've not yet been able to realize. And that work needs to be combined with new organizing efforts and a serious commitment to strike solidarity. We're not going to see the results of the work that's beginning right away, and this is really long-term work that people in DSA who are entering into need to be able to feel supported in doing so, no matter who sits on the leadership bodies of this organization. Simultaneously, we need to work in the state to win elected office, and you, but, but when there, we need our elected officials to use those offices as bully pulpits for socialism, first and foremost. Our, electo our electoral project should be confrontational and aimed at differentiating our socialist project, which is the break from our capitalist society to a socialist one, from that of liberals or, or progressives whose aim is a kinder, gentler capitalism. We need a, pol uh, a political project that's a project of independence from the Democratic Party. And as part of this project, our elected officials should introduce legislation that both aims to challenge the logic of capitalism and that makes our work in the labor movement and electorally easily, easier. So we want legislation that makes it easier for us to form unions, easier for people to get elected. We want to see proportional representation, kinds of legislation like that. They should also pull back the curtain on behind the scenes mechanisms of the state by reporting openly the attempts of the Democratic Party leaders to pull them into backdoor deals and other compromises. At the same time, we need to connect all of these pieces together. We need to connect the piece, we need to connect the labor movement to the socialist movement and the labor movement to our electoral work. Um, oh, I'm at time. Thanks. <laughs> All right, awesome, Kristen. Uh, next, we have Sam. So I, in outlining a path to socialism, I'll first note that revolutions are improvisational. Um, what I think is more useful rather than talking about you know, key performance indicators for the transition to socialism, we should be thinking about major tasks before us that prepare the class of uh, those who are dependent on the wage fund of the working class and its leadership for action in decisive moments. Um, to that, I want to talk about sort of three 
uh, circles that Red Star theorizes with regards to our organizing. We think of these as the class, the party, and the center. The class is the broadest, least coherent scale of organization. Um, it's shaped by capitalism itself and capitalism's contradictions. The party is the broad democratic membership organization that fights for socialism and builds power for the working class. And the center or centers or ideological groups that organize for specific approaches within the party, in this case, uh, within DSA and its current structure or factions. The tasks for each that I'd like to outline, citing some work from different formations within DSA that we found useful. For the class, the tasks before us are to accelerate the U.S. empire's retreat that is in its um, in its infancy of a, of a retreat and the rebuild working class institutions. To here, I'd cite the Communist Caucus's proletarian disorganization is the moment, uh, the problem of our moment, um, and also uh, reiterate the fact that anti-imperialism is itself a class project, that many decisive moments for socialism happen in the context of imperial struggles. For the party, our tasks to build the party include building what we've uh, heard from the Lighthouse Caucus and Aaron B. Uh, as regenerative leadership, um, leaders within the socialist movement who can personify that merger between socialism and the workers' movement and lead the organization and class struggles uh, to be effective. And finally, for centers within the organization to act, develop actively ideological organs within and of the organization to improve its direction and inject purpose into the work of the party and the broader class. Um, to that, I would also really uh, highlight the work that comrades across political tendencies calls have been making to build the party press with the resolution for a political, prolific, and democratic DSA editorial board, which we think gives an opportunity for these centers to develop in a productive way um, that is uh productive for the organization at large. So again, I think being able to say here are these like specific paths of, you know, actions that will happen or crises that will come is hard for us to develop. Um, but I do think that we need to make sure that we're able to um, face the tasks that are uh, that are in front of us with a clear eye and keep our eye in the ball with uh, with respect to our approach. Thank you, Sam. Uh, and Renee, you have last word on this uh, question. Thank you. Um, I'm entirely unsure what the path to socialism in the United States will be because the path to socialism is deeply contingent on events and institutions that are just outside our control. Um, that certain uncertainty doesn't mean we can't prepare for those contingencies by building a mass organization of politically activated members of the working class who will be able to act to seize power when those contingencies arise. Um, as a democratic socialist, I believe the path to socialism must come through a majority of people becoming socialists say, a socialist majority, invested in a transformation of society, both as a non-instrumental commitment to democracy and working class self-rule, and as an instrumental matter, based on what I believe are the most likely possible routes for effectively and permanently transforming the United States into a socialist country. Debates about the clean break, the dirty break, realignment from above or below, often for understandable reasons, ignore how much of our path to independence is going to be dependent on how the ruling class responds to our growing power and how the kind of transformation that will be required to make the United States into a socialist country with a working class socialist majority because of the United States constitutional system will likely happen, if at all, only in the wake of crises that we can prepare for, but not in any real sense anticipate or predict. I believe the best way to prepare for whatever may be coming is to build a mass socialist organization that can continue to push our electoral project forward, unify a left-wing pole of the labor movement, lead mass protest movements, and coordinate all of those activities as part of a majoritarian strategy to bring more people into DSA as socialists and to activate DSA members into organizers. 
right now, DSA is too small on its own to seriously contest for power. And so our current strategy should be focused on growing large enough to build that power. A key aspect of that is to deliver meaningful change in people's lives, both through non-reformist reforms in the political sphere and through labor and tenant organizing and other forms of change making elsewhere. That necessarily requires allying with a broader set of people and organizations that can help us make those changes, even if we don't agree on long-term goals. Uh, if we don't deliver for people in the shorter term, I don't believe they'll stick around for the longer term. In my own political journey, I joined DSA because it was the first time I'd been exposed to a socialist organization that seemed practically oriented towards both short-term campaigns and longer-term base building. Uh, as Kristen mentioned, we also need to be able to make changes or control the levers in the government around labor law, electoral processes, and other kinds of state controls that directly affect our ability to organize that, so that we can continue to grow and build power. Right now, we can't do that on our own. And so our electeds have to work with other electeds if we want to have any effect on policy, which I think we should. Ultimately, there's gonna come a moment when we run up against the limits of bourgeois capitalism, and we need to be in the strongest possible position in terms of size, organization, and power when that happens. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks y'all. Uh, I'm really enjoying uh, everyone's contributions. Um, so sticking with the idea of DSA and the road to socialism, uh, we're now gonna be paving that road a little bit. Uh, the next question is, what is your five-year plan for DSA? What are the goals and how do we get there? Uh, we're gonna start off with Kristen and then move on to Jesse, Renee, Rashad, and close with Sam. Uh, so Kristen, you can go ahead. Thanks. Um, so I want to um, hammer home on our on my time frame thing. I'm going to return to it again, and just recognize that five years is a small blip in the kind of project we're embarking on. Um, the, so therefore, our five year goals need to be pretty modest. Um, I also want to make the point that we're not going to win socialism without a massive shift in culture. So we need to push ourselves in our own organization and outside to move from a culture of individualism to a culture of solidarity. Um, how this is gonna happen, it's it's kind of, it's less concrete. And I think that it's going to stem from the work that we do and working together with others in the organization. Um, and our socialist project isn't gonna be won by people with perfect ideas, but millions of extremely flawed and complicated people coming together to fight for a better world. That being said, I'm going to, I just want to move into some internal DSA questions. Um, I'd like to see a DSA that takes our project as seriously as the task ahead of, ahead of us demands. We need to move away from the staff-driven NGO model that we've been shifting towards over the last several years and towards a robust membership organization where the national organization and local chapters work closely together in a much more symbiotic relationship. We should use this moment, one that's a bit, where we're in a bit of a, a downturn to seriously assess the structure of our organization and use the next few years to learn about socialist movements throughout the world and history and take what we learn from that and make changes to our organization that makes sense for our context and our moment. Um, we also need to work really hard on membership and political education 
Um, one thing that's been seriously neglected since the resurgence of DSA is helping members to develop politically. We're really good at teaching organizing skills, and we need to get equally good at providing members with political education that's going to allow them to develop a socialist political ideology that's going to keep them going for the long haul. Socialism is not a series of policies. It's a way of understanding, analyzing, and moving through the world. And without this, sticking sticking in through this, through the difficult times is impossible. Um, I would also like to see a massive expansion of the democracy in the organization. Members need to be seen as members who have a full stake in the direction of the organization and not simply as a list of volunteer, volunteers and donors to be mobilized after leaders make decisions. This is going to be messy and it's going to be really difficult, but it's absolutely important that we are able to work across differences and make that happen. Cool, thank you, Kristen. Uh, Jesse, you're up next. Thank you. Uh, so for me, the struggle for radical reforms and revolution are deeply connected. Oh, that's the caucus name. <laughs> Sorry, we need to join these mass reform movements, but push them beyond reforms. We need a socialist message which connects revolutionary ideas to the struggle of today and convince people of the need for revolution. Example, we should not merely be echoing progressive calls to break up the big banks, Amazon, etc. We need a socialist program of democratic public ownership of these firms for mass distribution. There's some comrades who set aside revolutionary ideas to focus on reforms. And there's some reverence for revolutionary change on the other side, where congressmen or comrades then refuse to engage in the real struggles of the working class. <clears throat> I believe the path to socialism is to connect these parts. For DSA to build this goal, I believe we need one, to promote Marxist ideas, a revolutionary socialist vision within DSA. Two, to build campaigns where DSA is visible in the class struggle. For example, in labor and the fight for trans rights now, with a profile that stands out with demands that go beyond the framework of capitalism. Struggles today should be linked to taking over the commanding heights of the economy by the working class, to nationalize, not bail out the whole banking and finance sector of the economy, to take over the railroads as the railway workers demand, and so on. Three, to offer an alternative to moderate and liberal leaders in community struggles and in labor, to build reform caucuses with a class struggle unionism in our workplace, and four, to democratize the socialist and labor movements. This means that, you know, we need to have our public spokespeople become champions of socialism, the class struggle, and of DSA. It doesn't mean that they vote to ban railroad strikes. It means that they vote against banning a railroad strike. It means that they use their power, as Kristen has said, in the bully pulpit to propagandize for DSA. What can we do in this five-year plan? You know, the Growth and Development Committee have put out a five-year plan, you know, that is, I would say modest, but I think, you know, achievable. I think that we should be setting goals for ourselves that are ambitious because, you know, I hope that we organize alongside, alongside ambitious comrades who want to take over the commanding heights of the economy, who want a real, change in their livelihoods. And that means that we cannot settle for simply what we have been serving to the working class. We need to let our representatives cook in that sense in a more effective way. Uh, but I'll just see the rest of my time. Thank you. Thanks a ton, Jesse. Uh, Renee, uh, you can go ahead. 
So, um, for the you know, I would say the the first thing that we need to do is to is to grow our membership. I'd love actually to see us double our membership um, in the next five years with deliberate recruitment, so that those members are rooted in the multiracial working class. Um, right now, DSA membership goes up or down or in and out like the tides based on self-selection. Uh, we should develop more deliberate recruitment strategies in both our local chapters and on the national level. We need more money. Um, increasing our membership is a key part of that, but we should implement the recent plan put forward by the NPC to ask people to essentially tithe a certain percentage of their income and do as much as we can in our chapters and on the national level to ask members and supporters who have more to give more. Uh, more money will mean more capacity to pay people to organize. Um, I uh, agree that we should seriously explore how to pay people in elected leadership positions to expand our organizing capacity. I do think staff is also a useful part of our organization that, that we should expand. I think we should build more state organizations and regional structures like California DSA that can more tightly connect chapters to one another and up and down to the national organization and back and will expand our ability to intervene meaningfully in political fights at the state level. Um, I think we need to pass meaningful structural reform at this year's convention to expand our national elected leadership. Um, I am, of course, partial to the proposal I co-authored, Democratize DSA, which would expand the National Political Committee into a much larger elected large deliberative body, uh, while making the steering committee of the NPC the body responsible for the day-to-day -day running of the organization. Uh, it would expand the capacity um, for our national organizing and give us a place to make political decisions between conventions with representation from a much broader swath of the organization, hopefully leading to a more unified organization. Um, even if we still end up disagreeing with one another, hopefully we do so in a way that, that led to more productive outcomes. Um, I really think we should continue our successful electoral project while building better relationships with our elected officials and forging tighter connections with more socialist in office committees. Uh, we should continue to fight for local, state, and federal gains for working people in areas like labor law, abortion and reproductive rights, defense of, defense of trans and queer people in general, and uh, fighting climate change, like the recent victory for the Building Public Renewables Act in New York. Um, we should continue our labor work on all fronts, supporting new organizing through projects like EWOC, labor militancy, like our strike ready campaign for uh, the Teamsters UPS contract, um, salting key industries and supporting rank and file reform caucuses like TDU and UAWD. One of our biggest issues right now that folks have mentioned is that DSA is a really tough place to organize interpersonally um, in ways that aren't really easy to change through specific reforms or initiatives. Um, I doubt the efficacy of a be nice online resolution, for instance, even if it passed with a supermajority at convention. Um, but as leaders, we can all do our best to take the discourse off Twitter, to be open to exchanges of views like this one, rather than just scoring dunks online, and to make an effort to actually see and talk to our fellow DSA members in real life. Um, one thing I really appreciated about the early era of the new NYC DSA is that even as we disagreed politically, uh, we all socialized together. I have been to many parties at Kristen's house, um, and uh, I really think it helped build a culture of disagreeing more agreeably. Um, I think we all really underestimate how much the quarantine has affected all of us for the worse in terms of isolation. My goal for the next five years, at the end of it, we have a much larger, more cohesive, stronger, more effective DSA that can build a socialist majority. Thank you. Thank you, Renee. Uh, Rashad, uh, you can uh, go ahead now. My five-year plan includes three core aspirational goals for 2028. Aspirational, because even if we fall short in moving towards these goals, 
They will help us take leaps in our work, keep us energized, and treat the escalation crises we're facing with the urgency it deserves. With that, goal number one, DSA's International Committee has mobilized a supermajority of chapters and members to participate in a nationwide anti-war campaign. Why? Following our anti-imperialist platform consistently and unapologetically is impossible without mass anti-imperialist action, both within our organization and on the streets. How can we do that? By launching a protracted priority campaign modeled after our current UPS strike rating work, where there is a clear and concise anti-war pledge for all DSA members, including our elected officials and community members to build a list for future mass mobilization. Goal two. DSA members make up at least 1% of all unions in strategically important sectors and new unions organized by bodies like EWOC. Why? Because to win the battle for democracy within unions, we will need to be building socialist caucuses. And to win the battle for democracy within society, we'll need those socialist caucuses leading mass strike action. How can we do this? By having the Growth and Development Committee collaborate with our National Labor Commission to have a dynamic focus on merging intentional recruitment work with our labor work from strike support to the rank and file strategy to EWOC. And goal number three, DSA members from an actual Democratic Socialist Caucus in the House of Representatives run and win agitational campaigns for Senate with statewide DSA body support. Why? Being a mass party means we have to be strong across entire states, not just their urban cores. And to be independent, we have to project our platform like how we could be doing through filibusters, for example. How can we do this? By investing elected leadership and staff resources into building statewide organizations supported by a well-resourced National Electoral Committee. In summary, when it's 2028 and my chapter is running a socialist state for state legislature, here's an example of how I want to be able to introduce DSA. DSA is building an independent socialist party so workers can have political power. The top three things to know about us are, number one, all chapters are bringing the anti-war movement to their communities. Number two, we are rooted in the labor movement with over 140,000 members in unions. And number three, a longtime member is running to be the first socialist senator in Illinois history. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Rashad. Uh, and Sam, you'll be closing us off. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to agree with a lot of the prescriptions for leadership that I heard from Renee. Um, I think one of the things that we've talked a lot about in Red Star has been moving away from being an organization that you join because you watch the news and one that you join because DSA was involved in a concrete class struggle. Um, I think the immediate task before DSA is to build a robust and rigorous socialist democratic culture. Um, as Red Star, we are uh, putting forward what we're calling the DSA Leadership Pledge, which we're inviting any members of this panel or other folks who are running for National Political Committee to sign to commit to leading the organization in the establishment of that culture. A few things that we really think are important for that. Um, so one, being able to develop uh, work on our campaigns that ties together work across the organization, um, takes learnings from chapters across the organization, uh, and injects purpose into the work of DSA across the country. Work like the Strike Ready campaign provides an opportunity to add national symbolic significance to important lo local work. We know that the Green New Deal Com Campaign Commission has positively focused on local campaigns, but in doing so in the past two years has lost the revolutionary horizon necessary for preparing 
uh, the working class for the political tasks of coming climate catastrophe. So we know that we can't just administer local campaigns apolitically. We need to see the national organization as an energizing political force. We need to build middle layers of leadership with the Growth and Development Committee built out much more thoroughly, being able to provide more advanced direction even to our larger chapters, supporting organizing staff and giving useful information to national political leadership. Uh, on that note, we need to reorient our relationship with staff, drawing on a distinction uh, between organizing staff and the director level staff and really building uh, a a uh, culture to address the rash of staff leadership departures in recent years. We need the NPC to stop interacting with the staff union through management, which is frankly absurd, and build relationships with our organization's rank and file representatives. We need to hold a review of director level staff to provide them with stronger level guidance, and we hope that members on the NPC will join us in staking out this position. Um, as I've said, the path towards socialism is an improvisational one. We have a limited but important ability to change the direction of the party and the class through organizational and political strategic work. I think the next two years of the NPC are really about establishing that robust and rigorous socialist democratic culture, which we invite all people running for the National Political Committee to sign on to the pledge to commit to doing. As we think about the five-year plan, we need to build an organization that is prepared for upsurges in political momentum that are coming as the tide comes back to build off the learnings of the uh, what we hope passes the Democracy Commission from Bread and Roses to be able to help identify why DSA was able to grow so rapidly, institutionalize that and, uh, and formalize it so that we know what can be done to capture the next political upswing in a more lasting manner. Thank you. All right. Uh... For the next section of today's panel, uh, we're going to be moving into open discussion with other DSA members and comrades. Uh, if you'd like to be a part of the discussion, please write stack in the Zoom chat. Uh, we're gonna be taking five questions or comments, uh, two minutes uh, for each one before letting the panelists give their thoughts and then going through a second round. Um, we really want to make sure we get the most out of our limited time. So we're going to send time reminders after one minute and 30 seconds. Please be concise and apologies in advance if you get muted at the two minute mark. Uh, all right, uh, so uh, as Stack comes in, I'll start reading it through. Um, okay, first uh, we have uh, Hunter. Uh, you can go ahead. Uh, I'm assuming someone will unmute you. Hello. Uh, yeah, we can hear you now. Oh, great. Okay, so my question was, um, how how um, how can a sustainable um, socialist movement be sustained and uh, maintained in this country without a, uh, a particular tragedy, um, specifically a loss of life, such as that of uh, the uprisings regarding George Floyd. Uh, all right, thank you, Hunter. Um, okay. No uh, oh, sorry. Uh, are you still continuing with your stack, or did you finish? Uh, uh, yeah, I was just gonna say. Um, I in the in the aftermath of George Floyd uh, incident, as you as many of us witnessed, there were a lot of um, people that were interested in joining labor movements. Uh, and interest in socialism and affiliate um, movement movement um, ideology increased significantly. And we saw the response from different local governments as well as the police, police forces. Um, 
but had that loss of life uh, not happened, who knows if the response uh, of a mass, a burgeoning mass movement would have uh, erupted. And so in regarding a socialist movement in this country, regarding the government, like our comrade was mentioning earlier, um, would that even be possible without another loss of life? Um, unfortunately, so I was, I was just explaining why I was, why I was asking what I was asking. So all right, yeah, thank thanks you. for talking, sir. Uh, next, uh, we have uh, Marcos. Uh, yeah, uh, you can go ahead uh, as soon as you're unmuted. Hi, I'm just wondering. Um, I, I I think in a lot of liberal, but even in to some extent some left circles, there's a tendency to reduce, um, you know, asymmetries of of outcomes, you know, amongst or between, you know, certain race groups and gender groups as being just about discrimination, and not really incorporating, um, not not really incorporating the necessary uh, class analysis into it and um, and effectively becoming very reductionist uh, identity politics. Um, how can DSA um, combat this kind of reductionism? Thanks. All right, thank you, Marcos. Uh, I believe we're gonna be taking three more stacks uh, for this first part of the open discussion before letting the uh, panelists respond. Uh, I saw someone was asking about that. Um, okay, so next we have uh, Nicholas. Uh, you can uh, go ahead. Um, yeah, hi, I yeah. I, yeah okay, can, good. can you hear me? Okay, great. Uh, hi, yeah, I was just curious, you know, when we talk about building power, when we talk about sort of getting our message to people, I am curious, especially from personal experiences, uh, in terms of coalitions, because I found, particularly with NGOs, uh, there's kind of a lot of both legal reasons and kind of social reasons where, you know, they aren't always the most comfortable with sort of like explicitly like socialist messaging. And I guess I'm just sort of curious, like in those situations, if we are going to work with those uh, groups, how are we supposed to sort of actually get an explicitly social message so we can sort of agitate the populace and know that we can, socialism as an ideology can take credit for those things. All right, uh, thank you, Nick. Uh, and then uh, Walter, you can go ahead next. Uh, has Walter been unmuted yet? Walter has been unmuted. Okay, uh, yeah, Walter, you can go ahead uh, as soon as you're ready. Hi, uh, I'll actually be speaking uh, uh, for Walter. I am a uh, retired transit authority worker for the subway in New York City, and I believe that socialist a socialist organization a socialist party should try to give leadership to the working class by not merely tailing after what struggles are going on or whatever suppression of struggles is going on from 
the union leadership. Socialists have something to say about the way struggles should go. Um, I'm not suggesting that anybody run into the uh, union office and yell at the uh, resident bureaucrats there that they're a bunch of sellouts. Rather, the duty of socialists is to try to point out a way forward. Um, and people have already brought up an example of the wrong way to do things, that is to say, the way that various socialist electeds um, went along with the Democratic Party, the president, and the misleaders of the railway workers' unions um, in suppressing that. And I think that um, without trying to boss people around, it is the duty of socialists to show the way forward and to point out that in even succeeding in a struggle, the gains will be temporary and that revolution is what's necessary to make gains permanent. You can't say everything all the time, but you have to keep that in your mind and say it whenever it's appropriate. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, thank you, Walter. Uh, and last for this first section uh, of the uh, open discussion period, we have uh, Phil Locker. So uh, you can go ahead uh, as soon as you're ready. Hey, uh, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, Philip. Yeah, I'm just trying to turn on my video. I don't see. Anyway, um, I guess I'll just go ahead without video. Um, I want to speak about the question of how do we uh, grow uh, over the next period, and I think the starting point of that is not um, is not some great organizational plan, but it is a we need a, a, a really different political approach and a, a different political strategy and, and elect at this convention an MPC that's committed to it um, to begin that work out of this convention. Um, I was really I think uh, to be to be. Uh, I think we need to talk about the elephant in the room. Uh, what are the political problems that have led to this crisis in DSA? It's not a question of just working harder um, and continuing to do the same stuff. In that, in that regard, I thought the Growth and Development Committee plan had lots of good ideas, but I think it was missing the, the big picture, which is what, are the, what is the political approach? What are the political conditions that are necessary? When, we, when our elected representatives vote to uh, fund the Israeli military uh, with US military aid when our elected representatives vote to expand NATO and support US imperialism's interventions in, in the war in Ukraine with its destructive policies, when our elected representatives vote to ban railway worker strikes, all of that um, has a really demoralizing, damaging impact on, on, our, on our organization. And we need, I think, a very different political approach of, uh, with, with uh, in our electoral strategy, which is the key part of DSA's work at this time, where we run uh, representatives, where we really try to develop, cultivate running candidates who will be representatives of DSA, who act as champions of socialism and class struggle in DSA, and have a distinct message separate from the more dominant progressive politics on the left. And that's not, I think the problems are most glaring with our members in Congress, where, where the need for accountability and the pressures of them are greater but it also extends down the ballot. Unfortunately, there's some exceptions, but most DSA candidates tend to sort of sound like left-wing versions of the progressive uh, uh, politics out there rather than putting forward a distinct socialist message and a clear message to join DSA 
to get to use their, their positions as a platform to popularize socialist demands. And I think of a bold political approach along those lines, up and down the ballot, combined with rooting ourselves in the labor movement and, uh, and community campaigns. I think on that basis and on the basis of big events, which are inevitable um, over the next uh, period, we can see DSA really grow and sink roots and become a powerful um, so socialist force for left-wing workers and young people who are looking to fight back. Uh, all right, uh, thank you a ton, uh, Philip. Uh, okay, now we're gonna be coming back to the panelists for some responses. Uh, I'm assuming by now Stack has probably filled up past what we're gonna be able to take in, in this uh, panel, uh, but just in case, uh, if you'd like to uh, you know, uh, jump on Stack, uh, you can still do so by writing Stack in the text chat uh, through the Zoom call. Uh, okay, so I'm gonna read out the order uh, of the panelists' responses for the uh, first set of questions uh, before uh, heading into them. So uh, first we have Sam uh, and then Kristen, and then Rashad, Jesse, and Renee. So uh, Sam, you can go ahead. Sorry, I'm still confused on the format. I have two minutes to speak on any of the questions that we just heard, or what is the what is the prompt? Uh, yeah, you can speak on uh, any of the questions that uh, were just uh, read out. Um, I believe you have uh, two minutes uh, for for that response. So yeah. Uh, okay, I will. Uh... I'll speak to one thing that I heard, which was, you know, how do we build an approach to growing our organization that isn't reliant on tragedy? Um, and I think the way that I think about this is um, truly an acknowledgement that the life of the working class under capitalism is one of many small tragedies. Every union busting campaign, every layoff due to economic headwinds, every loss of life to anti-Black police violence or racial vigilantism, every moment of devastation due to climate catastrophe. Each of these are small fires that pump the pistons of capitalist society to make it run. Um, I think we do no dis I think we do no service to ourselves by focusing on, you know, purely this like positive metrics oriented growth strategy. I think what we need is a political strategy that uh, accelerates people's knowledge of these small tragedies, that expands our understanding of what counts as a tragedy under capitalist society um, beyond these things that are currently politicizing, which are horrible and, and need to be opposed, but we need to denaturalize the tragedy that is so common across the organization, or across uh, capitalist society. And so, you know, I think we need to be able to have a political strategy that's, you know, advancing a strong indictment of capitalist society. Um, Another thing that I was I heard mention of was the Growth and Development Committee. I strongly agree with the need to um, develop a national organization that's able to inject a strong political perspective into uh, into chapters across the country. That's why I believe in a Growth and Development Committee that is able to analyze political work across the organization, report back to leadership on the work that's happening on the ground so that they can be better informed. Right now, the Growth and Development Committee has just has a focus more on like high level 101 trainings. I think we need a growth and development committee that's able to one, um, report and analyze conditions across the organization and political struggle across the organization. Uh, I think two, we need to be able to engage at large membership in building chapters where they are and building the national organization where there's not an opportunity for uh, 
new chapters to be built. And three, we need the Growth and Development Committee to be uh, investing not just in supporting the work of growing small chapters or chapters just learning how to hold a meeting or do fundraising, but we need a Growth and Development Committee that's able to give guidance to chapters across the country, right? San Francisco has things to learn. New York has things to learn. DC has things to learn. The chapters are not just... Um, getting to a certain size, getting stable, and then they're done with their political development. We need a growth and development committee that's invested to be like the middle layer of leadership that we need. In my opinion, it probably should be one of our biggest committees to be able to pull people from local organizations to do the work of guiding political struggle across the organization. And that's a that's a big uh, task for the organization. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Sam. Uh, and Kristen, you can go ahead next for uh, responses to the uh, open discussion. Sure. Um, one big theme that has that came forward in the questions are kind of like, how do we move forward? How do we build something sustainable? What does this look like? And I think one thing that has kind of happened in DSA um, that has been a big negative is a heavy focus on numbers and metrics and data. And anytime some anything, anytime that enters as a major focus of any area, it collapses the possibilities of what you're trying to build. One thing that's sorely missing and that would answer a lot of these questions that are coming up is a positive vision of what we're trying to build. Um, we want to bring in all these members. Okay, the question is for what? We want to win legislation for what? In what what are we building towards? And I think DSA and all of us need to really think about what is the vision of socialism that we're putting forward that brings people in to say, yes, I want that world. And fundamentally, the, the job of socialists is the job of world building and writing the future that we want to see. And I think that we, as an organization, has largely failed on that point. And while we don't have the Soviet Union to point to anymore, for better or for worse, we do have pieces of other places that we can bring in and say like, yes, we want mothers to be taken care of after they have babies and stay home for two years with their children. We want schools that are welcoming to everyone, that are able to teach history, that are able to accept everybody for who they are and their identity. We want workplaces that are democratic where you don't feel like going to work is a horrible slog every day. And that's part of our vision. And I think it's really important that we put forward these positive visions before we get so stuck on nitty gritty numbers and data. Uh, thank you, Kristen. Uh, Rashad. Uh you can go ahead and uh, give some responses to the uh, Q&A. Thank you to everyone that asked the question, just to run through the list and respect everyone and directly respond. Hunter, great question around how do we radicalize and move people uh, outside of a big national strategy like the murder of George Floyd. And I think it starts with having less transactional canvassing uh, and having more canvassing about trying to build real social ties uh, and really build relationships so that we can have like long lasting conversations and find out what are those tragedies that are already occurring in people's lives as Sam was alluding to. 
Um, secondly, as it pertains to Marcos's question about how do we bring a class analysis to uh, racial politics, for example, uh, I think it's unapologetically calling out the black bourgeoisie, for example, but that doesn't mean running away from a racial analysis, it means actually highlighting their role um, in the neocolonialist relations like in our, in our country and how they are a tool uh, for that. And it's been always a long running tool to have black faces in high places, for example. Uh, when it comes to engaging in coalitions and how do we build our strength, um, that was uh, um, forgetting comrade who asked the question, but how do we build our strength in coalition? It comes from growing our own base and actually building our own power. I mean, I hear the, the concerns about the political questions, which I absolutely agree, but we also do have to be very intentional about thinking about our membership growth because our numbers are also what give us our power on the ground and how we are the leveraging body when it comes to these coalitional relationships. Uh, when it comes to Walter's question about, you know, how do we build power within unions? I think, again, I've been alluding to all day, independent socialist caucuses within unions. We have to go beyond uh, these reform caucuses if we're going to push a socialist message, for example. And last but not least, when it comes to Philip's question, I think it really starts with popularizing our platform first and foremost and having voters who are conscious that they are voting in people who are going to be agitational and organizing for this platform and these electeds are vehicles for that and that means voters have to be consciously aware of that and that's going to take much more than the transactional types of camp canvassing that runs rampant within the organization thus far. Uh, thanks a ton Rashad uh, and Jesse uh, you're, you're up next. Okay, I froze out during Rashad's section. Am I am I heard? Am I visible? Yeah, you're okay. uh, you're good to go. I hope that doesn't count against my time. Anywho, um, <clears throat> so the uh, the question on like uh, specifically our orientation to like our electeds, I, I think it speaks to a lack of political development that we engage with like members that we're going to be putting into the maw of the like you know elected system. You know, we need to be preparing them more effectively. We need to be more effectively developing our members through what I would call cadre development. Cadre, you know, that's a very like, you know, er word in DSA. But what does that actually mean? To be fair, cadre is just a French word that means framework. And we're trying to build a framework amongst our members so that if you are in Seattle, Washington, and you answer a question that someone gives you from the street, and you are in Miami, Florida, and someone gives you a, a question to answer, you have pretty much the same answer in both places in a way that is actually going to be effective to those local conditions. Another thing I have on the growth and development aspect of this is that you know, there was recently this book that was published by Haymarket called Occupation Organizer. And I think we need to really kind of get beyond what I would call the Alinskyist framing of organizing in our uh, organization. So the professional organizer is someone who, you know, parachutes from above and comes out and like, you know, tries to organize a community in, in crisis, whereas we should be striving to be more of what the author themes uh, radical spade workers. And I think that's something that we should also be kind of... <laughs> orienting towards. We have a, you know, to develop that cadre to become radical spade workers rather than professional organizers is kind of, I see the goal of growth and development in the, in the organization. If we have people who are, you know, doing this from the groundwork, digging every single day in those communities rather than getting parachuted in and trying to like, you know, create a short-term apparatus that will help make us, uh, <laughs> growth and development will, uh, that will help us actually develop a stronger and lasting organization that can actually, you know, accomplish these five-year plans that we're all so stoked on. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Thank you. 
Awesome. Uh, thanks, Jesse uh, and Renee. You can uh, finish the first part of the Q&A. Yeah, so I'm going to pick up the um, uh, Phil's um, argument about um, the political orientation of our electeds and, and what that means for our growth. Um, and I'll take my privileges, I believe the oldest person on the panel to tell um, an anecdote like your grandparents would, um, which is that when I was a kid, I had really terrible cavities and I would go to the dentist and be in terrible pain. It would take 10 shots of Novocaine. I'd be sobbing. Um, and one day the dentist said, well, why don't we try Novocaine? I mean, sorry, why don't we try nitrous? And they put the nitrous on and I was relaxed. It was fine. It went beautifully, um, really easy. The next time I came back, the dentist said, well, you did so well with, with the nitrous last time. Let's try it without it this time. Um, and I guess what I would say is I feel like uh, DSA grew because of the strategy of Bernie um, of running in the Democratic Party, right? Like that is what led to us being here today. Our biggest growth day, I think, to this, this day, or certainly up there, is the day that AOC won running in a Democratic primary. Um, that is the strategy that has been successful electorally, and it has brought us growth. It has brought us prominence. Our relationship with our electeds is, is not something that I think is perfect, and I don't think our electeds are perfect. I think often there's a perception that those of us who want us to engage in more mainstream politics love our electeds. You can see my group chats, you know that's not true. What I want to do is figure out a way that our relationship with them builds our movement um, and creates the conditions for us to, to build further. Uh, I think you heard the articulation both in Kristen and my presentations that um, in addition to the kinds of, of material um, changes in people's circumstances, there's also a lot of structural reasons why it's important that the levers of government not be taken over by the right wing. I think we've seen Biden's NLRB um, has been really uh, key for some of the labor victories we've seen. Um, so the question is, how do we, as a mature organization, think about what led to our growth and build on it? And what led to our growth is not absenting ourselves from these fights. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Renee. Uh, actually, yeah, thanks everyone for the, for the really good responses. Um, we're gonna come back to the audience for the second half of the Q&A. Uh, we're gonna change it up just a little bit. I am gonna read two of the questions that were sent into the text chat. Uh, and then we'll have four stacks. Um, so uh, the first question that was sent through text uh, is from David, uh, quote, a significant portion of the discussion has focused on the DSA members in Congress, not the hundreds of local elected officials much closer to the organization. How do, uh, how do we see expanding the amount of down ballot comrades in office who are still close to DSA? So that's the first uh, text question. The second is from uh, Gerard, uh, quote, uh, question for all of the panelists. Uh, which contemporary socialist party, group, or movement around the world do you think DSA has the most to learn from? Uh, okay, cool. So those are the first two questions, and then we're going to go back on stack. Uh, so uh, next we have Noel. So uh, as soon as you're unmuted, you can go ahead. Alrighty, yeah. Um, I already put some of my question in the chat, but yeah. So a lot of, there's been a lot of talk about membership, like numbers and whatnot, and you know, whether qual quantitative is what you know we really need, yeah. Like I'd like to see DSA have much larger membership base, but I I think we also need a qualitative qualitatively better, more engaged membership base. Um, getting both great, but I prioritize the latter if I had to. Like you know, aside from just saying oh we need to get new members into education and action, it, like. 
I think we also need to recruit out of struggle. Like we show up at picket lines, build relationship with the organic leaders there. We need to recruit them. We're organized socialists. Like we need to organize organizers, not just go out and organize. Um, and like we get a job salting or peppering, like educate, agitate, organize them, our, our coworkers, turn them into socialists too. But like, you know, like Portland DSA, for instance, is doing like excellent labor work, but I'm curious how folks think, you know, we best go about like, you know, cashing in on the like prestige and goodwill that we've garnered to get like our labor contacts and like union locals out to other struggles that aren't just at the shop floor and like vice versa, giving, getting our contacts from like other, you know, more political, less economic struggles, like out to picket lines and such. Um, you know, like having a massive union contingent on say like an anti-fascist march would be like freaking amazing. Like, because, you know, fascism is there to like, you know, smash working class organization and the way we fight it is with working class organization. Um, yeah, and another thing quickly, just about uh, screaming at uh, labor brass that they're ineffective jerks and whatnot. There's an art to doing that. And some of that art is organizing among the rank and file and getting that, uh, getting that street cred there, or picket line cred. All right, thank you, Noel. Uh, next on stack, we have uh, Pedro. Uh, so yeah, you can go ahead uh, as soon as you're unmuted. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you to all the panelists who are speaking today. Um, so I kind of have two questions. Um, so basically, my question is that um, so Florida is probably the state least likely to adopt socialism, but it perhaps needs it the most. Um, Ron DeSantis uh, has unleashed a state of hate against trans people, and through trans legislation, has rendered Florida a hostile space for trans people. Um, how will DSA and their respective caucuses organize that? Uh, organized to combat fascist legislation that has real material effects on trans people? Um, and how will these efforts extend toward organizing the South? Uh, all right, uh, thanks a ton, Pedro. Um, next, uh, we have uh, Christina. Um, you can uh, go ahead. Hello, um, let me read the question I put in. I put, while a strong focus on unions is understandable and sort of the foundation of DSA, unions don't tend to own the businesses their members work for. Um, and I think one of the key concepts of socialism is workers owning the means of production. And today we have, like there exists worker owned businesses in the United States. Um, they tend to run into issues surrounding uh, lending, the type of thing where a bank would ask the owner of a business to put up their house or other collateral, which is a lot more challenging with a worker-owned business. What strategies is DSA taking or could take to make uh, worker ownership a more viable option across the United States? Thanks. Uh, thank you, Christina. Uh, and uh, next up, uh, we have Neil. Uh, so uh, yeah, you can go ahead. Hey, can everyone hear me okay? All right, cool. Yep, you're good. Um, this is to just uh, one of 
uh, Renee's points. And by the way, Renee, you've been fantastic on this panel. Thank you so much. Um, it's uh, one of the points that you made that there's like this assumption that people in DSA who want to do more mainstream kind of politics love the elections or love all the electeds. And if you can see my group chats, you'd know that that's not true, right? I, I'm in New York. I definitely appreciate it. But respectfully, the issue is that most of us can't see your group chats, right? Like there's a massive, massive gulf in the experience that like plugged in and more cadre DSA members or whatever have and ones that more casual and part-time members do. Uh, I could name examples, but I think that's something that's apparent to most people in the organization. So I guess my question is, how would you propose narrowing that gap? Uh, all right, thank you, Neil. Uh, I believe that is the uh, end of the uh, question period of uh, the second second section. Uh, so, uh, yeah, um, uh, we're going to be coming back uh, to the panelists, uh, and uh, I'm going to read out the the order just like the first time. Uh, so first we have Jesse, and then Renee, uh, and then Rashad, Sam, and Kristen. So that'll be the uh, the speaker order for this uh, second half of the uh, Q and A. So Jesse, you can go ahead. Uh, well, I, I'm going to have to answer Noelle's question first as an elected leader of Portland DSA to a rank and file member of Portland DSA. So I will say that, um, on the question of like, you know, how do we get like these, like, how do we cash in on like these labor contacts that we've made in, you know, our struggle in the Portland labor movement or any other chapter in their specific labor movement is specifically to, you know, industrialize amongst them, you know, really try to commit our members to get into the rank and file movement importantly that through the socialist job fair and then you know as you said noel to like you know mobilize people to their struggles organize amongst them you know fight against the boss so effectively that the union brass gets in the way and legitimacy is won by those rank and file members in that struggle and then trying to further politicize them by saying your struggle is not solely linked to like you know whether or not your supervisor like stole time from you today. It's about like, you know, the entire structure that allows your supervisor to steal your time, as well as those who want your supervisor to only steal your time, like the fascist threat that you mentioned, you know, crushing worker organization in order to proliferate a uh, extreme right-wing perspective in government. Um, in that sense, like we need to, yeah, how do we actually cash in? I'm trying to answer your question, Noel. Uh, we do that by, you know, merging our movements, in an effective fashion by, by doing that work and then by messaging in our workplaces, using our union boards, using those conversations and relationships to bring people outside of the workplace into those social movements. I know that Teamsters and Local 804 in New York have done this effectively by having like, you know, legislative campaigns that have brought rank and file leaders out of the workshop and into the halls of power to testify or to canvas, signature collect, et cetera. That's one way that we can effectively bring people from the revenue file struggle into our work, FMR workplaces into the political movement. Um, I, I really wanted to touch on the Florida thing. I have 30 seconds left uh, on the question of like, how can we effectively like, you know, fight the right in Florida, you know, especially with these horrific, like, you know, uh, trans policies that have listed a do not travel. Fuck, I'm going to lose time here. Um, we need to effectively, you know, push our YDSA chapters in Florida, especially like FIU, uh, UCF, and uh, UF to more effectively build a statewide campaign to, to fight that specific element. And we need to get those people in the same room talking more effectively than they have been previously. Okay, I'm time. Thank you. 
All right, thank you, uh, Jesse. Uh, all right, Renee, uh, you're next. Yeah, so I'll, I'll pick up Neil's question. Um, I absolutely agree that it's a really big problem that we have this gulf between people who are super engaged in the organization and those who are more casual members and a gulf in, in knowledge and experience. When I first joined NYCDSA, I actually had, I was um, working on how to make sure that we were following campaign finance law. And so the first thing was you need to talk to the steering committee and the steering committee seemed like this incredibly distant set of powerful people who I had to gain access to. And then once we were talking to steering so we could talk to national staff, actually to my uh, caucus mate, David Duhalde, who I think is still on the call, who seemed even further away and further unreachable. Um, and I absolutely agree that, that we need ways to knit those kinds of relationships together, which is why we're putting forward democratized DSA, which would vastly expand the number of people on the NPC to the point where it's much more likely that you know someone who knows someone who's in national leadership um, and expanded capacity on the national level, I think will just, will, will, um, I think when you expand the size of anybody, you make it much more responsive to its voters, which are DSA members in this instance, and um, make it much more uh, make make it much easier for rank and file members to um, contact national leaders and to feel engaged in the in the work of the organization. Uh, with my remaining forty seconds, um, with respect to trans rights, unfortunately, I feel like there's not a huge amount DSA can do because so many of these southern state houses are so controlled by the right wing. But I think we can do direct action. We can join these coalitions, which is why, again, uh, I co-authored another resolution: fighting the right by defending abortion rights, democracy, and trans people. I don't know if that's the that exact order, but it's another convention resolution that calls for us to focus on, on these areas as places where the Christian right is trying to build power and attacking the most vulnerable members of, of the working class. So um, that's my response. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Renee. Uh, and Rashad, you'll be taking the responses from here. To the first question about engaging with our local elected officials being different than engaging with our elected officials in Congress, I would actually disagree and think that the elements around accountability uh, and electoral discipline still matter, especially when you have like local electeds in New York, for example, breaking um, you know, platform commitments around green and open public spaces, uh, as well as, you know, voting for capitalist housing development, two things that completely go against our platform, for example. And so again, that level of dis that level of electoral discipline and accountability still matters at the local level. To the question around learning from socialist movements abroad, again, I'll just reference what I referenced earlier in the conversation around learning from Bolivia. I think two particular things is a socialist labor power, as well as um, knowing how to merge with different social struggles uh, like they've been able to successfully do. When it comes to learning how to cash in, I think Noel's question, uh, great ones. Those are, again, ones I think that are a little bit more open, but that's why, again, I proposed with the GDC taking the same type of approach as taken with the GND Commission so far and merging with, for example, like the National Labor Commission um, so that it can begin to play a, a additive role in addressing those questions. When it comes to the South uh, in defending against trans rights, uh, I think we can learn a lot from the developments going on in Nebraska with Megan Hunt and how we're learning that you that you fight for democracy through political independence, just like we can learn from Bolivia. And I also think that we can stop divesting and disenfranchising Afro-socialists and Socialists of Color Caucus, which will really allow us to build a great presence in the Black Belt that still exists in the South, for example. 
And to the question about how do we start to expand ideas around worker ownership, I think that we can definitely invest more within like our mutual aid working group, which is as simply as making sure they have a Zoom, for example, and that goes for things like Afro social, socials of color, so that at least meeting time is not a barrier to being able to develop those conversations. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Rashad. Uh, Sam, you're up next. Yeah, so I want to talk about two things, which are the down ballot question and learning from socialist parties abroad. Um, regarding the down ballot question, I want to say here, we can't have it both ways. If we argue that the moment that was most transformative for DSA or a huge positive moment was the election of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, we can't then shield ourselves from criticism by retreating to the back line by highlighting the down ballot organizers of DSA's current focus as the real work that DSA has done. It's a defense in depth strategy to deal with the fact that we haven't reckoned as an organization with the contradictions of fully owning the responsibilities of socialist leadership. This isn't the end of the world. We're all building this project together. This is a problem we faced in San Francisco. And as leaders of San Francisco, I hope that people in leadership in SF will own those these problems as well. It's a real concrete problem, but we can't keep finding ways to, to avoid really facing it. And so one of the items in our leadership pledge is Red Star to begin rebuilding connections to federal, state, and local electeds that have been neglected by voting to hold regular meetings with key electeds and develop an active and engaged socialist in office committee. We can't, affect, we can't expect our elected members to have a better orientation when, for example, the NPC has repeatedly let the opportunity to meet with AOC slip as another opportunity to ice out the one NPC member who took it on as a responsibility. In that situation and in so many others, we need to ask ourselves, who is the real wrecker, one NPC member or the former majority faction of our leadership this term? Uh, and then on the question of learning from socialist parties abroad, I will call out uh, Red, Start's, uh, Red Star's Red Start education program, which will be coming to give a presentation on a text by Marta Harnecker called Rebuilding the Left. So I'll post that in the chat, and we're going to be hosting a reading and discussion series for Wednesday. Hope to see you all there. All right. Thank you, Sam. Uh, and last for the Q&A, we have Kristen. Uh yeah, I guess I want to touch on the local electeds question as well. Um, I think the focus on AOC at all is really important because the fact of the matter is they are the most visible faces of the socialist movement. And when the most visible faces of the socialist movement are constantly making poor decisions that alienate the members of the working class away from a socialist vision, we are of course going to focus on them. And I do think that the down the down ballot work that has been done is has also been very important. But I think even those down ballot candidates and electeds need to be held to the same kind of high standard that we're expecting of our of our national electeds. Um, I think that our electoral program has been built kind of quickly and without a really long-term vision for what exactly we're doing with them, kind of under the understanding of, well, we all care about elections across factions, which is true. But I think that we need to really draw out the debates about what we're doing with our electeds and begin to come to a more clear understanding of what our goal is through our electoral work that's not just getting people elected. 
Uh, all right, thank you, Kristen. That is the end of our open discussion. Uh, thank you everyone for a really great Q&A. Um, discussions like this are a small but significant start to the vibrant internal dynamics that help realize a working class movement as the engine of change. So with that in mind, we're going to be hearing closing remarks from each of the panelists before the panel runs out of gas, uh, starting with Rashad, moving on to Kristen, uh, and then Sam, Renee, and Jesse. Uh, and for closing statements, you each have three minutes. So Rashad, you can go, uh, you can go ahead. For the party we're building to have the proper energy needed for any of the work laid out today or to address any of the problems that we mentioned today, we need to first and foremost pass the vibe check. Like if we were throwing a party at the crib, one of the many ways that the lakefront chapter that I'm a part of here locally has built great vibes in our chapter is through having an affirmative culture. So I want to, I want us all to take a couple seconds to think about a comrade that we can affirm this afternoon. The comrade I want to affirm today is Amy Wilhelm, who's serving as the co-chair of Seattle DSA. Amy has consistently and unapologetically centered anti-imperialist action in their political praxis, which is why we are running for the MPC together as Marxist unity groups endorsed candidates. Amy also knows what it takes for us to have influential working class base building organizations like tennis unions, a key type of organization we'll need to win the battle for democracy. Additionally, Amy brings valuable insights on how to protect against the NGOification of our work through their experiences of being let down by progressive trans rights organizations. Last but certainly not least, Amy has played an outsized role in helping me understand how DSA needs to democratize and improve its structures. They have helped so much because they communicate in an accessible way. It's the same accessible communication that makes them a great MPC candidate because they have both the skills and the political will to open the books for the members on their organization's operations, on their organization's decision-making and on their organization's political debates. So if you're a member, but especially if you're a delegate, then please support our MPC candidates this convention. We're running to not just talk the talk when it comes to anti-imperialism, but let's start walking the walk. To stop ignoring that our platform says we demand a new socialist constitution. And to also stop ignoring that the 2023-21 resolution that committed us to political independence. So if you want MPC members that will walk the anti-imperialist walk, openly oppose the US constitution and advocate for building a democratic socialist republic and to work relentlessly to keep DSA independent, then again, please support our MPC candidacies this convention. In the spirit of liberation, I yield the rest of my time so we can end early and y'all can send those affirmation messages to the comrade that you thought of during that couple seconds. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Rashad, for the first last word. Uh, Kristen, uh, you're next. Um, yeah, so I guess I just want to close this out by reiterating a couple of points. One is that socialism is not going to be won on um, any on a short term time scale. And so in order to build ourselves for a future of organizing together, hopefully for the rest of our lives, um, we need to build an internal culture that is respectful and open and democratic. And I think panels like this are one key part in doing this. Um, we should do our politics out in the open and not in group chats and behind the scenes maneuvering. And I think that this is a really great way 
to begin that. Um, I think that we need to lead with a strong socialist vision. Um, we need to have an idea of what we want for the future and what we're fighting for. And we need to make DSA a place that we can bring coworkers. Um, echoing back to the question in the last section of how do we capitalize on our work is DSA has to be a place where you can bring somebody. Right now, it's been, right now it's not a place where if I met someone at work, I would bring them to a DSA meeting. DSA is a kind of alienating in-group at this point. And I think that we need to find a way to be far more open and far more welcoming to people from all kinds of backgrounds and experiences. Um, we need to, we also need to have strong, strong leaders who are, who lead with their politics first. We shouldn't guess, we shouldn't have to guess at anyone's politics on the NPC or on our steering committees. We should know what they are and be able to think about that they're going to act in predictable ways. Um, so I think it's really important that we always lead and organize around politics. Um, and with my last few, I just want to say that I really support the democracy commission that Bread and Roses is putting forward. I think that taking the time to analyze and think and move in a way that's intentional and come out of the next two years after convention with a really strong and solid plan for how to fix this organization is the way forward. Anything, any kind of big changes that we make need to be something that we really want. And so I think the Democracy Commission is the way to do it. Thanks. Uh, thank you so much, Kristen. Uh, Sam, uh, you can have your closing remarks now. Great, thank you so much. Um, I will first follow uh, Rashad's lead in also highlighting the work of two uh, comrades who I'm running for the National Political Committee on a slate with as part of the Red Star Caucus. This is uh, Megan Romer and John Lewis, two organizers who've done a lot of really good work both nationally and locally to build uh, DSA where they are and to build DSA across the country. So I'm really excited to be running for leadership with those two talented comrades. Um, I will also uh, ask folks who are here as you think about what's going uh, on in the political debates around convention to really think about what we can be doing to demand that the organization at large and our, especially our elected political leadership is able to lead the organization in establishing a robust and rigorous socialist democratic culture. That's our focus for convention um, and that's the uh, change that we want to see happen. In addition to having a national organization that is able to inject an anti-imperialist and militant class struggle approach to our political work, we also need to be able to have an NPC which is able to lead the organization in developing that culture. So as I've said, we are putting forward a leadership pledge, which we are asking any uh, people running for the National Political Committee to sign, which is a nine-point commitment to lead the organization in the establishment of that culture. Um, we're really excited to be able to put this forward. We're excited to put it forward alongside some of the work that we're supporting from formations across the uh, organization to do stuff like expand DSA's editorial practices and establish a democracy commission to be able to identify a strong path forward to improve DSA's process and structure. 
Um, at the same time, as I've said before, um, we're really going to be calling folks to build the growth and development committee, not as a, you know, simple metrics orientation or, you know, something that's able to do these 101 trainings, which are super important, but to actually be part of the extension of the organization's politics to be able to develop from local organizations and bring those learnings across the country. Um, so though we haven't released it yet, we're going to be putting forward an amendment to the growth and development committee's consensus resolution um, that we're going to be putting forward as an opportunity to help build on the good work that's been done by the GDC, but to expand that work to be the middle layer of leadership and support for staff uh, that we need the GDC to be, to be able to be having member organizers step into higher level roles after chapter leadership so that they don't just burn away and are able to continue building the organization into the fighting and robust socialist organization that we need it to be. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Sam. Uh, and Renee, you can uh, go next. Yeah, I just want to begin by emphasizing the sort of positive note from the, the first couple of statements that I made. Um, you know, I think that the one thing that's emerged is there are a lot of um, sources of agreement, right? I think we all agree that the culture of DSA organizing needs to change and needs to become more humane for people to organize in. We agree we need more capacity on the national level. Uh, we agree we need to grow. We have disagreements about areas of emphasis and how to get there, but there is a lot of agreement. This does not feel to me like an organization that is any, in any meaningful sense adrift. Um, it's hard to organize democratically. It's hard to have this kind of organization. I'm not saying that we're doing perfectly or as 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 well as we can be, but I think we're doing a lot better than sometimes um, we assess, especially in online spaces where the doom and gloom can overtake the real work that's going on in our chapters and across the country. Um, and I, just to sort of um, close a little bit on. Um, how we build power. And, you know, I think the idea that that if we were to condemn our wildly popular congressional electeds um, because they um, make mistakes and they've made mistakes, again, I don't, I'm not here to defend um, every action elected, um, but the with that action that builds power, builds the organization, and makes a stronger socialist movement. And I think the idea that expelling them would do that is um, pretty untested. And I'm quite skeptical. And I think the idea that figuring out ways to work with them, to bring them into the fold, to change what they're doing, to meet with them before a vote and ask them to, to make a different choice are going to be more effective strategies for dealing with this issue of how we maintain the relationship with our electeds. Um, I'm not sure where I am on time, but I'll just say, you know, um, there's no party in the world that can control everybody who's in it all the time. Um, it's always going to be a balance. It's always going to be about how we draw that line and where we draw it. And there are accountability measures that have been taken that I fully support. Um, and there are ones that I think are, 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 you know, overblown. For me, it's not black and white. It's not a binary. It's figuring out always what is the step we can take to build the most power. And I think expelling a congressperson is almost never going to be um, the answer to that question. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much, Renee. Uh, and Jesse, uh, you have uh, last word. I thank you. We have a chance to build DSA towards a radical, democratic, membership-run party that can offer an alternative to dangerous right-wing Republicans and to Wall Street Democrats. If we offer a vision of a society free from racial and gender-based oppression, a society based on economic, racial, gender, justice, 
a democratic socialist society where the working class is in charge. DSA can build deep roots in labor and community struggles if we act as a fighting organizations that wages serious national fuck you to the establishment campaigns that can win meaningful reforms and make an impact in the lives of working people. This requires we make a sharp change in our electoral strategy. DSA should have a high public profile promoted by our electeds as a clear opposition to conservative and liberal versions of pro-capitalist politics. We need to push for taking concrete steps towards a massive working class party that is independent of the pro-capitalist Democratic Party. This does not preclude tactical decisions to run on a democratic ballot line, as long as these tactics are used to build toward the goal of transforming DSA into a mass socialist party. This means DSA should strive to serve as an organizational expression of the long-term interests and independent political aims of the working class and build up its own independent electoral, media, and organizing capacity. However, all of this is under threat by the alarming slide towards a staff-driven NGO model within DSA. Senior staff need to be under the direction of our democratically elected national leadership, rather than obstructing NPC decisions or pursuing their own agenda. Structures for more engagement, discussion, and control include significantly strengthening and democratizing DSA's media, ensuring we hold the constitutionally mandated biannual activist conferences, and forming a large national leadership body that can connect chapters and hold the NPC and senior national staff accountable. You can find out more about these proposals and res resolutions that my caucus, Reform and Revolution, is supporting on our website, reformandrevolution.org. And just to close it, take it easy, comrades, but take it. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Jesse, and to all of the panelists. Um, that is the end of today's panel. Uh, I hope that this can serve as an informative moment for all of us and help push the DSA members here to face some of the most decisive battles awaiting the multiracial, gender diverse, fighting working class. Soon, you'll be able to find a recording of this panel on Reform, uh, Reform and Revolution's YouTube channel. Uh, also, make sure to check out the organizers of this panel. Find R&R uh, at reformrevolution.org and Marxist Unity, uh, Marxist Unity Group at marxistunity.com. Uh, thanks so much again to the panelists, as well as the audience members for being here. Uh, and in the spirit of Ashad's call to uh, appreciate our comrades and pass the vibe check, a special thank you to the very cool members of my YDSA chapter who attended the panel. Um, goodbye, everyone. <laughs>